All right, good morning, Grace Covenant. That was, that was a little weak, but I'll accept it. Hope everyone is good this morning and prepared for the heat wave today. So pray that God uh, spares us any more <coughs> uh, heat after this week, I can tell you that. I'm ready for fall. Um, if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, or 6, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6. And we are going to take on the third household code today. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 is where we will be. And we are nearly complete in our study through uh, Ephesians on Sunday mornings. Um, and so I know I mentioned it last week, but for those who weren't here last week, uh, we'll be going through Mark next. So if you want to prepare your hearts and minds by studying Mark or possibly picking up some commentaries and those kinds of things, we'll be tackling the gospel of Mark after we're done with Ephesians. Uh, but Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, I would ask that you stand in honor of the one who gave us this word as we read our text together this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and the integrity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, serving with good will as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with them. All right, you can, uh, if you would, bow with me in prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to come together as a body. Thank you for the encouragement it was to me to hear this body lift, your word, lift you up in praise, to sing your words of praise and the psalms back to you. Uh, we just thank you for the grace that has united us all in Christ. Uh, I pray that you will remove any distractions from me, that your word would be preached pure, um, and that it would be impactful uh, through your spirits working on the hearts of everyone that hears it. Um, we just pray that all this will be done in your glory. In your holy name I pray, amen. You can be seated. So <clears throat> the last several weeks we went through the household codes. That's just the term that is often used for this particular section. It starts in about 522, chapter 5 and verse 22, um, and it goes through chapter 6 and verse 9. So it's taken us several weeks to get through everything. But the household codes were wives and husbands and how they are to act, children and parents, um, and how that relationship is supposed to be. Uh, and then it wraps up with slaves and masters here that we'll be covering today. So the third and final one we'll go through today. Now, there's a few preliminary things I want to go over so that we can really comprehend and understand uh, slavery as it was in that time as best we can. Uh, we won't go through a, a deep dive in that, but just a general overview of slavery because in our Western mindset, slavery conjures up different ideas today um, than it did uh, or meant back then. Um, so we'll talk about that here in just a moment. Um, but I want us to really understand that there's two aspects to this text today that we have to really, really grapple with. And one is, uh, first of all, that we in our context, in Western context, we don't have the slave-master relationship the same way they did in the first century. And so some of this wording may seem different, and there's going to be some general principles that we're going to be able to apply to how one works for 
their boss or how a boss would maybe have authority, so the earthly authority sphere. But one thing that is sometimes missed in this text is the fact that the gospel does truly bring everyone to the foot of the cross, that the gospel does truly bring everyone to a point of being equal in the eyes of God. That doesn't change the fact that the people who were saved in the first century as slaves were still slaves. It doesn't change the fact that those who were masters and were converted uh, in the first century were still masters. But how they acted, who they were, was now found in Christ, no longer in the simply the slave and master relationship. So there's two aspects there that we'll cover today. But uh, before we dig into that, the, the idea of slavery in our Western mindset, uh, we have the idea of chattel slavery, the, the, the abomination that it was, forced slavery um, based on race primarily. Um, but in, in the first century, especially in Rome, that was not generally the result of, of or the motivation, I should say, for slavery. Often it was from war, possibly kidnapping, um, but honestly one of the most common ones was poverty. One of the most common contributors to slavery in the first century was poverty. Uh, because if a family could not afford to take care of themselves through their vocation, they would basically lend themselves out to someone who was wealthy enough to provide for them. Um, and by law, they would indenture themselves to that person and become a bond servant. Um, and then they would then owe that person their lives, essentially, by law. Um, and then they were commanded by their master to do all the work or all the things that the master told them to do, regardless of what it might be. Um, and the, the idea of slavery then was much different than it is now as well, uh, or what we may understand. There were slaves in those days that were um, slaves of high-ranking Roman officials who would be the treasurer for an entire city. Uh, very intelligent, well-educated, treated very well. There were some that were treated very poorly. Under the law, a master was not required to treat a specific slave a specific way for any specific reason. Um, so I wanted us to, to really get a, around our eyes around, or our minds around, excuse me, what that looks like. I do want to address one quick thing on the idea here of slavery. Um, it's a little longer introduction than normal today, but I want us to, to understand, because there's a lot of people a lot of people that have a, a big issue with Paul addressing slavery here and not using a negative context. He, he's, not, he's, he's addressing slavery and how a master should act and how a slave should act, but he's not saying slavery shouldn't exist or speaking about it in a negative context. Well, you have to take all of Scripture and understand how it unifies together around a particular topic. It's pretty clear if you read Philemon that Paul, the overall institution of slavery, was not the best way of operation. You see that in Philemon. He, he asks uh, Philemon for the freedom of Onesimus, calls Onesimus the slave who had ran away, his brother in Christ, that he was equal to the apostles. If you read the context of what Paul talks about, about slavery as a whole, he does have a negative connotation of it overall. But the point is, is that Paul brings it back to, but the gospel demands that you act a certain way regardless of whether you're a slave, regardless of whether you're a master. So he brings it back to the gospel. But I want to address that because there's a lot of people in our very um, liberal and progressive times where, where everybody has to, to read the scriptures through our current understanding of, of culture and those kinds of things that try to um, really take credit away from Paul or, or to um, demean him or take authority away from him or say that his, his scriptures really aren't um, uh, given from God because if it was really from God, he wouldn't have slavery, that none of that is true. 
Um, Paul did have a negative connotation of slavery overall because slavery devalued humans both in that context um, and ours today. It devalued human beings. And so the gospel, his teaching was the gospel brought humans back to equal. All humans are equal intrinsically before God, um, either equally sinful in need of a Savior or has been given that grace, right? So I just wanted to make sure and, and address that point before we get into it because I don't want anyone to think that Paul does not have a, a view of slavery, of, of uh, accepting it in whatever the world wants to do, right? So uh, now that I have put that to rest, hopefully for us, um, the parallel passage, you can write this down. We're going to be in Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1 today as well. So we'll be going back and forth. But if you recall, Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians at the same time and very likely sent the letters probably with the same person to go back to these cities. So we find a lot of overlap there. So our text today, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, we're going to begin with 5 through 7. Our first point is obey as unto Christ obey as unto Christ. And that's going to be in verses 5 through 7. So let me reread that for us to get us our minds recentered on it. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 6, it says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and the integrity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart serving with good will as to the Lord and not to men. There's a couple of things that we need to note first here uh, in this text is that slaves are commanded to be obedient. Just like we found out whenever the text was speaking about uh, parents and children, the relationship was different than the husband and wife. This is the same idea. So the same word for obey here is used for the parents obeying the, the or excuse me, children obeying the parents, um, which is a different relationship than wives submitting to your husbands. So we talked about that several weeks ago. Um, so I want to make sure and, and drive home that this is an obedience situation. Paul is saying that slaves should indeed be obedient to their masters, that God placed them there for a reason, um, and that we need to submit to those in earthly authority over us. So in our context, remember, we're looking at this not from a slave-master application for us today because we're not in that environment. We, we, we don't have slaves and masters, although sometimes some of us may say our jobs feels like one, right? Um, but there is that idea of the authority um, <coughs> infrastructure that we have in our jobs. We have someone in authority over us. Some of us may have authority of someone under us. Um, and we have to understand that the best application that we have for this text today is that we are to do all that we do unto the glory of God. That's going to be something that we're going to talk about throughout today's message, is doing all that we do as the glory of God. So the masters in the flesh, so we are to, the slaves were to be obedient to the masters according to the flesh. Paul is very careful here to uh, specify the masters according to the flesh. That's going to be human masters. Paul has referenced Christ as master multiple times as Lord. This can also be translated as Lord. Some of your versions may say that. And what Paul is doing is according to the flesh simply means human masters that you are to submit to your human masters with fear and trembling. And so there's this idea here, not of fear that you're going to be beaten, although that happened a lot in the first century. Slaves were treated, some were um, literally just murdered. But there's also the idea here of fear and trembling with a reverential respect. 
an acknowledgement that you are, in fact, a slave and that your master is the one who has authority over you. So Paul is not saying for them to tremble physically or to fear uh, in a negative fear where you were feared for your life. The motivation for the slave's obedience is, in fact, what? What's it say? And the integrity of your heart as to Christ. So the fear and trembling here is not a physical fear. I'm only doing this because I don't want to be beaten. No, Paul is, is stepping outside of the normal cultural idea of slaves did what they said because they didn't want to have to be beaten or they didn't want to have to whatever the case the master chose to do to, to discipline them. Paul is saying that as a slave who is changed in the gospel, who is impacted by Christ, who is united by Christ, who represents Christ now as a slave to quite possibly an unconverted master, you are to submit to your master because of Christ. That the gospel impacts even the slave-master relationship. That it should be done with integrity. Colossians 3.22 mentions this as well. It says, Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but with integrity of heart, fearing the Lord. So the parallel passage echoes and even expands a little bit for us this idea that Paul is telling the slaves, because you are now a believer, because you are a follower of Christ, you, to, you are to obey your earthly master with integrity as if it was Christ himself with whom you were answering to. Now think about that word integrity for just a minute, because in my opinion, on our Western American culture, the, the idea of integrity has all but been forgotten. And so the idea of integrity is the idea that you will do what is right, you will honor your master, that you will follow your boss's instructions correctly as to the Lord, even when no one is looking. That's the definition of, in, of integrity, right? Do the, the right thing even when no one is watching. I think he's going to go into more detail here in just a minute about this, but I want us to understand and, and, and really, really get our minds wrapped around because that is something that I think is very hard for all. I know I struggle with that sometimes. The boss isn't looking. What can, I, what can I not do and put off till tomorrow? That's something that can be a little hard sometimes. But the integrity of our heart that we as believers are to answer to Christ, that we are to work in our jobs, that we are to submit to the earthly authorities that we have over us, we are to submit to them in integrity of our hearts as to Christ doing what is right, even when no one is looking. Because both in Colossians and here, like in verse 6 of Ephesians 6, it says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. As slaves of Christ. If we are to do things out of the integrity of our hearts, not to eye service, that simply means you don't do the things that you do because someone is watching. Now think back for just a moment. Where else do we hear this teaching? All throughout the New Testament, Christ talked about doing what is right when no one is there. Paul talks about it not only here, but in multiple epistles. This idea of doing what is right for God's glory, not just so men can... How many parables did Christ share about doing things for the glory of God, not so that men can see you? How many times have you gone to the Pharisees for that same thing? Doing things so that men can see you instead of doing it for Christ. You do absolutely, unequivocally compromise the gospel when you are not working to your earthly authorities 
with integrity as to Christ. That's ultimately what Paul is saying. It is a, literally a gospel issue. Now, I don't mean that in it's, it's compromising salvation or those kinds of things, but it does indeed compromise your witness. It does compromise Christ and the gospel to those around you when we do not live every day, day in and day out, in the integrity of doing all that we do, regardless of who's watching, as to Christ. Because ultimately, does Paul not give us the beautiful word picture in Romans that says, you are no longer slaves to sin, but you are slaves to what? Christ. We are slaves to Christ, because ultimately we all must view ourselves as slaves to Christ, because that's what the gospel teaches. So when it comes to, to doing this as unto Christ, there's some practical things that we have to understand. Not faking it. What are, what are some practical things? Not faking it. How, how many of us have gotten our, our, done our jobs long enough now that there's, there's things that we can do that makes it look like we're working? There was a big thing. I, I had to work, start working from home in 2020 whenever the COVID stuff hit. I was working for a different job then. And the big thing that was floating around on the internet is hooking oscillating fans or different things to your computer so they kept it active and you looked active on the chat and kept everything going so that it looked like you were working and you could just go do whatever you wanted to. Or people were putting up green screens behind laptops and literally driving around their car because they could make it look like they're at the office driving around in their car doing different things, even on meetings. There was just a whole just, just strain of things making it look like you'd fake it and make it look like you're working. Is that integrity? Is that showing that we work for Christ, that we truly are slaves for Christ? What about not for the praise of men? When you go in to do a good job for, for your current employer or for who is in authority over you, whether it be in the church, whether it be at school, uh, kids, your, your parents can apply to this as well. Do you do it just so someone gives you a pat on the back or do you do it for the glory of God? Because your motivations do matter. Your motivations do, in fact, matter. And in verse 7, Paul adds one more word on here that really struck me to the core. It, it, it pierced my heart. Serving with good will, in verse 7, as to the Lord. Serving with good will as to the Lord. Sometimes my attitude needs a check. Anybody else, anybody else feel that? Okay? You wake up, you're on your way to work, <clears throat> the alarm didn't go off right, the car didn't want to start, right? Now you're stuck in traffic and you're going to be late no matter what, and your attitude continues. Is that goodwill? Are you doing that with, with goodwill as to the Lord? My, my point is here, this is, this is what struck me to the heart. I think the most challenging for me this week was serving with goodwill. What is, your, what is your attitude towards it? Are you doing it joyfully? Are you doing it with a good spirit? Am I serving my authority here on earth with a good heart and goodwill toward them and service to the Lord? That is very challenging for me. Before we move on, though, I, I want to address this point, as I mentioned earlier, um, the, the, there's two things that we have to take away from this text, both the general application of how we submit to an earthly authority, but then there's also the other aspect of that we truly are all made equal in the gospel. Because Paul calls us slaves of Christ. Serve everyone in the Lord as the motivation. 
Serve as though Christ is your master. Serve as, the, as though the very instruction that you received, as long as it doesn't break the law of God, okay, I do want to make sure it's not a blind obedience to everything, okay? In our culture, that could mean supporting LGBTQ+, plus, et cetera, um, agendas. There's a lot of things that businesses are doing now that I'm, I'm not advocating for a blind obedience, okay? But what I am saying is, when we are called to do something that is not immoral, illegal, or against the law of God, we are to obey that as though Christ himself gave us that command because ultimately, who are we a slave to? Christ. This comes down to the sincerity with, with which we do our work. Colossians 3.23, as we are proceeding through our parallel passage, says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. Do you think Paul is trying to get across that the motivation matters more than the action? That the attitude with which you do that matters just as much as whether or not you do it? Because we are truly slaves of Christ. Christ set us free from the bonds of sin. He set us free, and he brought us to a level, he brought the slaves to a level that was equal to their masters in Christ. That is very significant. And the reason why it's significant is because in the culture of Paul, the very fact that he addressed slaves was unheard of. Was absolutely unheard of. The very fact that he would have written slaves and addressed them by person and acknowledged them as part of the congregation and seeing them as people that he could write to was absolutely against the culture. In that day, people had made announcements to the masters who would then relay that to the slaves. The slaves were not even considered anything above property. But why is that? Why is that? Why is there a difference there? Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 tells us, doesn't it? That we were all lost, that there's no longer Jew or Gentile, that we were all dead in sin, and that we are no longer dead in sin. Galatians echoes the same thing, and we'll look at that in just a few moments. But we, we, we need to wrap our minds around here because if we simply look at this as authority, we have to obey those in authority over us. We've missed the context of the point because the entire book of Ephesians is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that impacts us day in and day out. And so Paul here is making an, an explicit point to treat the slaves in the church as equal to the masters in the church because the gospel brings us all to the foot of the cross equally, equally depraved, equally in need of a Savior, and equally given the grace that has brought us to understand that and saved us. So we need to understand that so we don't miss the true and best point that we're seeing here is that the gospel is the great equalizer. It doesn't change the position of someone in life, necessarily. Paul didn't say, slaves, now that you're saved, you are no longer slaves, does he? He says, but in Christ, you are equal to your masters, but you still have a responsibility to obey as though you are united with me. That's the point. Number two, reap what is sown. So we're going to look at verse eight now. Point number two is reap what is sown. Verse eight reads, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or or free. 
So Paul has just finished talking about that we work unto God, not to men, that we are slaves of Christ, that we don't do it for eye service, we don't do it for pats on the back, that we follow our authorities simply because we are different. We are no longer dead in sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we then obey differently than what everyone else does. And then he says in verse 8, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So he brings this idea of the Lord paying good for good and paying evil for evil. And this principle was talked about throughout the Old and New Testament. We know there's places all over that we can look. In fact, turn with me to Galatians chapter 6 and let's, let's look at one together. Galatians chapter 6. But we do see in both the Old and New Testament the idea that God gives good for good and evil for evil. And we're going to break down what this means. I do not mean that if you give money to the poor, you will receive dollar for dollar back what you've given. I do not mean to echo the faith healers or the word of faith or the, the prosperity gospel that says if you write a check of $1,000 to my ministry, by faith, God will expand that by 10 times. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? But what I am talking about is that there is an eternal outcome, an eternal outcome for all the deeds of human beings. There is an eternal consequence for everything that any human does at any point in their life. Let's look at it together. So in Galatians chapter 6, he, he addresses the same principle here. So Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10 reads, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So a couple things to address here in Galatians 6 before we move on. I bring this into both a, 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 a temporal and eternal aspect. Don't grow weary in doing good. That is a, a fantastic text to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ. I have personally been encouraged by that, by other friends and elders and pastors. There are times that it gets really tiresome of doing good, doesn't it? Where, where you're, you know what? I, I'm, I'm doing family worship, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I'm, I'm honoring my boss, and all it seems is that everything in my house breaks down. I have to replace everything. My car breaks down. The temperatures are high. Everything that could go wrong is going wrong. I am tired of doing what's right. I'm tired. We're human. It's okay, it's okay to acknowledge it. Like, can I get some? Yes, yes, everybody. Anybody else feel that besides me? Okay. And Paul understands that, and, and God understands that because he gave us this word that says, and let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. When we get to the point where we are tired of doing good and we're tired of all the things that we're trying to do right, we have lost our eternal perspective. We have. We've been distracted. We no longer are looking at, I know that eternally 
God says that those who are wicked will receive his wrath. Those who have been justified in Christ, which is the good works, that the only way that we're able to do good works, they will receive the just desserts, the just rewards for that. And we'll read it here in just a second. But when we look at that aspect, we have truly come to the point where we are absolutely distracted off of the eternal things, which happens very, very easily. But sometimes if we can identify those places where we have those those distractions, those things that have gotten us off of the eternal perspective, we can get back into where we don't grow weary of doing good. So I just wanted to address that briefly because that is too good of a text to, to just read as part of our, our overall lesson. That is a valuable point to take away is that there are times that we are going to lose heart in doing good because we have lost perspective of eternity. This world is passing away. Our life is but a vapor we, we have bigger and better things to look forward to. As defeating as that sounds in the moment, sometimes you're just like, I don't want to worry about eternity. I just want my car to turn on, right? But remember, encourage one another. This is, this is, this is not our home. We are not citizens here. We are merely, merely pilgrim. Wow. Merely pilgrims moving through, right? We have an eternal home, an eternal kingdom that we will be a part of. We have to view this as an eternal perspective. Colossians 3, our parallel passage, says the same thing. 3, 24 and 25 in Colossians, it says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, serve the Lord Christ. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Those who have done wrong, those who are not eternally justified by Christ alone will receive the consequences of the wrong that they have done. There's no doubt about that. But believer, understand that not one scintilla of an iota of the wrath of God for your sins will ever reach you. And so when you have that eternal perspective and you know that nothing that I've done wrong in my past, nothing that I've done wrong in my present, nothing that I will do wrong in my future will incur the judgmental wrath of God in his perfection because that was taken by Christ, how much easier is it to do good? When, when, when we get to that point to understand that there was nothing we could do to, to cross that chasm, that we are sinners and he is holy and there was nothing we could do, but in his grace, he took every drop. There is nothing left of the wrath of God for any believer of, in, in, in all of time. He disciplines us, yes, as a loving father, but there is no wrath left for us. We will reap what Christ has sown for us. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to think about. And a couple of other places I want to read to you just so that you know that there's multiple places in Scripture that talk about what will come for those who are not converted and what will come for those who are. Matthew 16, 27 you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Matthew 16, 27 reads, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay each one according to his deeds. Revelation 20, verse 12 says, Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Revelation twenty-two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. So to drive this home one last time, I just, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. When we as believers are judged for our works, the works of Christ and his act of obedience to the law is what is seen. That's what we will reap. Because we have been united with Christ by his grace through the work of the Spirit, through the power of regeneration to wake us up from the dead, to bring us out of slavery to sin. We are now alive in Christ. That is what is seen. We, by grace alone, reap what Christ has sown. Those who have not been given that grace will reap the consequences of all of their sinful deeds. And they will face the wrath of God head on. That's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. It truly is. By grace we have been saved through faith. Now the last part of verse 8 says something very interesting here. It ends with, let me read the whole verse, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So he sums up, because this is one long sentence. If you look in verses 5 through 8, there has been no period. Paul is the king of long sentences. And so Paul has written this long sentence, and he sums up everything he just said, that everything he just talked about, doing things the right way, not doing things as men-pleasers, that we are slaves of Christ, is for the man who is slave or free. That means no one is exempt from this. No one is exempt from this. Because there would have been people in his day, had he not put that there, I guarantee you in his day and probably ours too, that would have tried to say, well, I'm a slave. That Paul's talking about slaves. He's not talking to me. I'm a free man. Or I don't have to listen to what Paul says because I'm the master. And we're going to look at verse 9 here in a minute because he addresses them too. But Paul is saying there is no partiality here. God is not a respecter of persons. Whether slave or free, if you're a sinner, you're a sinner. I don't care if you're the president of the United States or the trash man. It doesn't matter. Whether you're the king of a country or the peasant who can barely feed his family throughout history, it doesn't matter. The gospel is the great equalizer because everyone is a sinner in need of a savior. God is not a respecter of persons. In fact, Acts 10.34, as soon as Paul... I mean, excuse me, as soon as Peter saw this big sheet coming down and said, I get to eat everything, right? I'm excited. I get to eat. What he understood was God is not a, re a respecter of persons. He, knows, he shows no partiality. The gospel is for Jew and Gentile alike. And then Paul echoes the same thing in Galatians. Almost the entire letter is, is based around the idea that the gospel is for everyone. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the Old Testament law anymore because Christ fulfilled that. The gospel levels the playing field. That's Galatians 3, 27 and 29 through 29. It reads, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed 
heirs according to his promise. Do you catch up? There's nothing left. Male, female, slave, free, Jew, Greek. That is, in Paul's day, that is saying everybody. Everybody. So in our churches, in Grace Covenant Church, we need to understand that the gospel has leveled the playing field for all of us. That we are believers united in Christ. That we aren't united on our favorite football team, baseball team. We aren't united because we live in Marshfield or the surrounding area. We're not united because we're Missourians. Those are all things that we can build friendships on, and I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is we are a church that we are brought together here to worship because we are united in Christ and nothing else. Everything else is paltry compared to the gospel. And there's one aspect I want to show here that I want to address. The, the, the believers in Rome, you have to understand that in Roman times, one-third of the Roman population were slaves. One-third. That's a pretty high amount. But notice, notice what impacted the Roman culture. There is no record, no record at all, of Christians trying to overturn slavery from a legal perspective in the Roman government. There's not. The New Testament church didn't try to do that. Yet they changed the world. Do you know how they did it? They understood that their position in Christ impacts what the world sees, not the other way around. That them being a slave doesn't impact the gospel. The gospel impacts how they're a slave. That being a master doesn't impact... Oh, I just got myself confused. You guys, you guys saw where I'm going with that, right? Okay? I was going to say it backwards. I know I was. I'll just pause there and say, see previous statement. But that the gospel impacts who we are so that the world sees Christ when they look at us. That we don't impact the gospel based on who we are. Everybody, everybody, yes, amen, right? The gospel impacts what the world sees. That is how the gospel is spread. The Christians of the first century didn't change the world by trying to change the law. They simply followed Christ. That's what they did. The gospel impacted who they were, and they understood to be united with him meant that they were different than everyone around them. They, didn't mean, they knew that it didn't mean an immediate release from slavery. They knew it didn't mean that they were no longer responsible for the husband and wife relationship. They knew that it didn't mean that they were no longer responsible to be parents or children. Do, do you see that the, the, the household codes they're building on one another? Paul has spent four or five chapters explaining the gospel and who we are in Christ, saying this impacts everything about who you are, not the other way around. And that's our application. The Lord does indeed bless good works. He does. But it doesn't mean you're going to live in the biggest house or the biggest car, have the biggest car, all the nice things of this world. In fact, Scripture really teaches the exact opposite, doesn't it? That you'll give up the things of this world for the gospel. That's what we're called to do. But we can trust our holy, perfect, loving Father to do good by us because He promises He will and to know that our consequences for being a believer will be paid out, our good deeds will be paid out in eternity the eternal focus. But then also understand that the gospel impacts everything about who we are. Everything. 
Number three, the final point today. Honorable authorities in verse 9. Honorable authorities. So Paul didn't let the masters off the hook. In fact, this is another point of being countercultural to what the Romans would have normally thought acceptable. He actually addresses the masters and how they should be addressing and treating their slaves. That was unheard of. Unheard of. By the law, the masters could do whatever they wanted to with their slaves. The only, one of the few records um, is a philosopher of that time saying, you'll get better productivity if you don't treat them quite as bad. There was just, but it was more of a logical, man-centered, how do you get the most productivity out of your, out of your um, property? It'd be like me saying, hey, I know that's your car, but if you don't rev the engine, race the RPMs all up, bang it in the curbs, it'll run longer and last better and, and do more work for you, right? It's the same idea. That's how they viewed it was simply property. Slaves were viewed as property. But Paul shakes off the norm and says, no, in the gospel, the masters and slaves had the same responsibility. Look at verse 9. And masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Paul has given us four verses to look at, five through eight, and he comes back and says, masters, do the same thing. Do the same thing. Serve the Lord. Be slaves of Christ. Don't do things so people can see them. Be, have integrity in your heart. Fear those who have authority over you. And then he says right here, give up threatening. Give up threatening. As leaders, if you're in a leadership position anywhere, whether it be in your home, at work, church, doesn't matter, how you lead is wildly important. The way that you lead and the way that you get motivation from your people was wildly important. Because if we are to be like our master who is in heaven, Christ led by being a servant, not by threatening. Did he not? How, how did he set the example of how men should act and how servants, or excuse me, leaders should lead? He washed feet. He made sure people were fed. He sent them to fish to get their taxes. Over and over and over again, he was a servant, not a commander. There's a wild difference between us who have earthly authority and how we lead from when what the world says, which is if you threaten them enough, if you write them up enough, and again, there's consequences for every job. I'm not, I'm not saying to, to buck that authority within your, in your place of employment, what I am saying is, if you dehumanize someone, if you are unjust, if you play favorites, those are the kinds of things that, that Scripture is literally teaching against because it's against what our master did. And we are to emulate our master in all that we who have authority and all that he did. Because Christ is truly master of all. Paul has built that out through the last five, six verses now. Because the true master is one who is united with Christ. We are, as masters who are believers, we are united with Christ and we should emulate the deeds of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the leadership of, of Christ, all with the same styles that he did it in. In other words, meekness, humility, 
The scriptures predicted a servant coming down, or that the Lord of heaven coming down as a servant, did he not? Did the Old Testament not predict that? And yet we would think ourselves so audacious to think that I have more authority and, and utilize that authority differently than the Lord of heaven did when he was on earth? How quickly do we, do we, do we let pride get into our minds and, and our egos fluff and go, I'm going to make people do what I want them to do? That's simply not how Christ said to do it. In fact, this is more of a parental authority example, but I read it this week and I couldn't get out of my mind because it's so different than what our culture says to do today. So different. I've been in management for years and years. I've been through all kinds of trainings. And over and over these trainings talk about get, here's how you motivate people and, and you, you show them what you want them to do and you have them repeat it back to you and there's all kinds of things. And, but all the time it's constantly, but ultimately the result is you'll lose your job if you don't do what I say. But the best training that I had throughout all of it was when the perspective of the company changed and it was no longer about driving, it was about leading. It was no longer about commanding, it was about serving. And so when you change that mentality, you understand that the motivation for a, a one of authority is to be like Christ. And Christ at no point drove people with the exception of maybe a whip to cleanse the temple. I cannot take that argument. But when his leadership was put on display, he led and served, not drove and commanded. And this, this example that I want to share with you was impactful to me because I have so many kids and daughters. But I read this story this week. There's, there's these parents that were riding on this train um, in, in the south. Uh, east part of our country, and it was very foggy down there. It was near the ocean. Uh, mist had come in, um, and due to the weather and the issues that they had, the train derailed. Uh, supposedly a true story. The train derailed and went off into the bay. And these parents had a paraplegic daughter with them in a wheelchair. She was strapped in. She couldn't move. And as the train impacted the water and began to fill up, rescuers were there fairly quickly with boats before it could sink completely. And what the parents did is between the two of them, with all the strength that they could muster, they raised their daughter in their wheelchair, in her wheelchair, up to the, to the rescuers who were at the, the top of the train and had the rescue hatch opened. And the last thing these parents did was raise their daughter in a wheelchair to the rescuer before they were sucked underwater from the impact of the so much weight going down in the waves. And the last thing they did was ensure that their daughter was raised up to success, to be saved, to be rescued, that her life was more important than theirs. Didn't Christ live a life that showed that those whom he came to save were important and that his life was laid down for those whom he came to lead? That's a very impactful story for a parent, but truly it's applicable to anyone who's an authority. Do those that you, are, that you lead, those whom you have responsibility for, those whom you have authority over, do you raise them up so that they can be successful, so that they can see Christ in you, so that they can see Christ's glory? What is your motivation for how you lead them? Is it to stand on top of them so that you can be seen, or is it to raise them up so that they can be seen? That's the example I want to leave you with because that's truly the application. The gospel makes us all 
equal. The master is like Christ, just as the slave is. It doesn't take away the responsibility of the person in authority leading, but it's to lead like Christ. It doesn't take away the responsibility of the slave of obeying, but they are to obey like Christ. Do you see the difference between what the world would say the slave-master relationship or the authority um, uh, and the, those who honor the authority, how that relationship would work? It's a vast difference. It changes who they are in that position, but it doesn't necessarily remove them from that position. There's another way of thinking about it. So I would challenge all of us to think about that in all of our relationships. Those who we answer to, who are authority above us, how are we acting? Those whom have authority over someone, how are we leading? Because it truly is an example of the gospel to the world around us. Those simple relationships, and if they are not lived out in the strength of the Spirit within us to live out those things, the gospel is truly compromised. It's not seen as it's intended to be seen. So I pray that we would do that going forward. The last thing I would conclude with here is just the wrapping up of our household code little, little section here. Because the, 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 the master and the slave is not the only relationship that we've seen in the last several weeks that was called to be like Christ. Both parties in every household code that we have studied are to view themselves as part of, of Christ and responsible to God. Both parties. Husband, wife, child, parent, slave, master. This is the overarching message of the household codes that all are subject to Christ. That all of those in the church, there is no, there is no better, best. There, there is none of that. There is unity in Christ. We are all in Christ. We should rest in him, lean on his spirit so that we live out the commands that we have been given over the last several weeks. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word this morning. I pray that we would take the challenges that we have from this text, uh, the authorities that, that we may be under, or those of us who may have authority. I pray that we will exercise both submission and obedience, or leadership and sacrifice and servant leadership for those that need it. I pray, Lord, that we would look at every opportunity that we have in this world and in the life that you've given us as an opportunity to show Christ to the world around us, uh, that we would rest in him, rest in our union with him, and truly understand and comprehend that we are, in fact, Christ's to the world, being united with him, that we are one body united in you to the world. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen.